Welcome back to the Social Contracts Research Podcast, a production of the Social Contracts Research Network at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm your host, Christopher Watkin, Chief Investigator at the SCRN. In this episode, we take a deep dive into the language of Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison, looking at the metaphors and assumptions that swirl around his use of social contract language. The analysis, I think, gives us an insight into the Australian PM's deep political convictions. I hope you enjoy the episode. What does the Prime Minister Scott Morrison mean when he talks about the social contract? I want to bring together some material from speeches that he's given during his time in office with an answer that he gave to a question I asked him about the social contract in February this year. And the reason that I want to do this is I think it's an important insight into any politician's view of the world. So looking at the way that someone uses social contract language won't necessarily tell you about particular policy decisions a particular politician will make, but it will give you an insight into their political instincts, their political inclinations, the sort of values that they're going to bring to any decision that they make. And that's what I think we're going to find when we look at what Scott Morrison thinks about the social contract. So let's go. I'd like to begin with the answer that Scott Morrison gave to the question that I asked him back in February. So the context was this. On the 22nd of February, 2021, I was part of a delegation uh, that traveled up to Canberra to meet with various politicians during the day. Uh, So we met with um, Anthony Albanese, the leader of the opposition in the morning. Uh, We met with Tanya Plibersek, Labour MP, uh, Social Services Minister Anne Rustin, uh, Minister of Government Services and the NDIS, Stuart Roberts and others. And in the afternoon, we were ushered into the Prime Minister's corridor of Parliament House uh, for a 30 minute audience, during which time I had the opportunity to ask one question about the social contract. I'd like to begin by playing the question and the Prime Minister's answer in full, and then I'll circle back and pull out what I think are some important aspects of the answer that he gives. Thank you so much for taking the time to meet with us. Chris Watkin from Monash University. You mentioned a while ago, trying to sort of frame the idea of of what we're going through at the moment, the language of the the social contract. Mm. Uh, And I just wonder what are your reflections on where we are with that in the country now. Do you think COVID has, has strengthened the social contract and brought us together? And how do you think we, we can strengthen this idea that, that Anthony Albanese was mentioning with us this morning, of the common good? How can we find that in the situation that we are at the moment? I think Australia has one of the best social contracts of any country in the world. Um, and our safety net speaks to that. And what I'm pleased about is that the course of COVID under extreme circumstances, there was also a ready appreciation that sometimes the social safety has to expand Mm. to deal with something like that quickly and effectively. And we did that with no pushback. There was no argument about these sorts of things. There was a complete understanding of it. And the social contract then also understands that as emergencies pass, the social contract then finds its its new equilibrium. as a former social services minister, I've got a pretty good 
appreciation, I work with some of you in that, in that role, that there is a good understanding in Australia about the need for the many services that are provided and that they're done at a, a highly efficient uh, and, and caring level, whether it's in aged care or in uh, mission work or various things, alcohol abuse or whatever. And there is, a, I think, a great um, spirit within Australians to support that quite enthusiastically and certainly to do it particularly in the not-for-profit sector or as someone said to me today, the not-for-loss sector. Um, and because so they can invest back in the services they're providing. I mean, the point, point is not to not make a profit. <laughs> uh, but I think there's a great, strong resilience and support for these institutions in Australia. So I, I, I suppose I would have a more positive view about the status of this contract, and I would say Australia was an example, not a laggard, in this way. And I think our systems reflect that um, right across the board, whether it's our... our you know, we sit between the United Kingdom and the United States when it comes to our health system um, and in many, and our education system and, and in our delivery of social services and our, our social safety net through income support and so on. So I, I think Australia has a good balance of these things and I think we have to keep working on the balance. But the bit that we need to... We can't ignore is that, yes, governments have a role in this contract, but so do citizens. Citizens don't contract away their social responsibility to governments. And uh, Jonathan Sachs talks a lot about this, and I've read a lot of his work, um, particularly recently, on his covenant thinking and so on. I think he was absolutely right about this sort of stuff. And, uh, and I think that series he did with the BBC in his recent um, book on morality uh, I think <coughs> sets that out in a really positive way and certainly has given me a greater guide on some of those issues. But if we allow, through politics, Australians to think that I pay my taxes, I vote, that's all I have to do, then that's not a place where the covenant is working. And I, would, I prefer the word covenant in Sachs' terms than contract. It's richer. It's richer, it's deeper. It has, it has greater responsibilities attached to it. Mm. Um, so, And you're involved, and I think, in enlivening people's understanding of that. And without that, then I think we, we have a fairly shallow state. So let's look carefully at the language that the PM uses to frame the social contract in this answer. Let's begin with the overall architecture of the response. Scott Morrison frames the social contract as a set of relationships between three parties. We've got the state, the non-profit sector, and Australian citizens. And the word he uses most often to characterise these relationships is responsibilities. Let's push a little bit deeper now. The first thing I want to highlight from the PM's response is a metaphor. And it's the metaphor of the safety net. The Australian social contract is very closely allied in the Prime Minister's mind to what he calls our safety net. The question, of course, is what does he mean by that? Well, it's a term that he uses to describe welfare and social security provisions, notably the job seeker allowance. And it's a term that the PM is very fond of using. It occurs 305 times on the official website of his 2000 plus speeches and transcripts during his time as Prime Minister. 
And I think it's a metaphor that it's worth us dwelling on for a little moment, because of course, metaphors are important. They frame ideas, they predispose us to think about ideas in particular ways. Now, there are other metaphors we could use to describe the welfare system. Uh, here are some of them with indicative frequencies, uh, the frequency with which they're used on the PM's website of speeches. We've got eight mentions of social welfare, 64 mentions of social security, 305 mentions of a safety net, 213 mentions of income support and six mentions of welfare support. So it's clear that the, the safety net metaphor is important for Scott Morrison. It's one he returns to again and again. There are two significant aspects to this metaphor. First of all, it's negative. And secondly, it's passive. Let's think about each of those in turn. So first of all, it's negative. A safety net is something you hope you don't need, isn't it? A safety net is there, for example, in a, a circus or on a building site for when someone makes a mistake. It saves them and it teaches them to be more careful next time. You're glad that a safety net's there, but if you need it, something's already gone wrong. You've made a bad mistake if you need the help of a safety net or someone close to you has made that mistake. Secondly, the safety net metaphor is passive. If you land in a safety net, you don't have control over what's happening to you. A safety net is not something that you manage your way through. It's not a leadership opportunity. It's something that you fall into. You can't help it, you've lost control. If we imagine a safety net for a high wire act, you cease to be a soaring subject the moment you need a safety net and you've become a falling object. And this understanding then of the safety net metaphor is instructive for the way that Scott Morrison sees the social contract and welfare provision in Australia. Uh, it is something that happens when things have already gone wrong. Uh, it renders the users passive to a certain extent, and it's a negative thing. It's not desirable. So what we see here is that Scott Morrison's understanding of this safety net is that it's adaptive. Let me quote from his answer to my question. The social contract then, he says, also understands that as emergencies pass, the social contract then finds its new equilibrium, close quote. So what changes over time then is not the contract itself, the sense that the state has some responsibility to support those who are going through hard times. What changes over time is the form that that responsibility takes. In times of great hardship, such as a pandemic, the state should do more. It should widen its safety net, which is what we saw in Australia with the introduction of the $1,500 a fortnight JobKeeper allowance and the $550 a fortnight coronavirus supplement to the job seeker payment that was eventually uh, phased out. Now the PM uses a very interesting term to describe this set of responsibilities. And the term he uses is balance. Now, he frames this balance as a very positive thing and he puts it between two extremes. On the one hand, we've got the US system. Uh, and on the other hand, he says, we've got the UK. We can imagine the, the US system of almost uh, exclusively private healthcare 
uh, and on the other extreme, the, the British system of the National Health Service free at the point of delivery. And as far as Mr. Morrison's concerned, the balance between these two extremes that Australia has struck is a good thing. This metaphor of balance is one he returns to again and again when he's discussing the social contract, and it's one we'll return to later on in this video as well. Another prominent theme in the PM's answer to my question was the theme of responsibility. Quote, citizens don't contract away their social responsibility to governments. In fact, it wouldn't be going too far, I think, to say that Mr. Morrison's social contract can be understood as a distribution of responsibilities. The question naturally arises then, what does responsibility mean here? Well, the PM gives us a clue by referencing the late UK Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, especially Sachs's radio broadcasts. I've tracked the broadcasting question down. It's a series hosted by Sachs and aired on the BBC Radio 4 in 2018, entitled Morality in the 21st Century. Uh, and Sachs is big on this theme of responsibility, which will uh, account for why Scott Morrison is picking it up so heavily in, in his interaction with Sachs. Um, in the opening monologue to the first episode of this radio series, Sachs unpacks what he means by responsibility. Let's listen. Within our culture, do we still have a place for morality anymore? That's a serious question, and the fact that we can ask it is one of the biggest changes in my lifetime. Morality is what lifts us above the pursuit of self-interest and self-esteem. It's about the things we do not just because they're good for me, but because they're good for us. It's about doing things because we ought to, about duty, obligation, doing the right and honourable thing. At a national level, it's about the values, virtues and ideals that bind us together as a society. It's about collective responsibility for the common good. But these ideas have been radically out of fashion for some time. I believe this is dangerous for our future, because a world without morality is good for the successful and the strong, but very bad for everyone else. Can we rediscover a common moral purpose? The starting point for this journey is responsibility. Morality is about the responsibility each of us has for upholding the fairness and graciousness of our shared world. So then, Sachs's take is that both morality and responsibility are part of a view of the world that is not self-centred, but looks to the good of others, as well as myself. This is classic social contract territory. This is the idea of the common good. Uh, for Sachs, it's a view of the world that thinks in terms of, quote, us, not in terms of me. But it's also about, quote, the values and virtues and ideals that bind society together as a society. Uh, Sachs talks about collective responsibility for the common good. And that the really interesting thing, I think, to note here is that the Sachs is keen to distribute responsibility for the common good to everybody. We all have our part to play in upholding and protecting and fostering this idea of the common good. And notice as well from the clip that I played how for Sachs this morality is a bulwark for the weak. Uh, he says, quote, a world without morality 
is good for the successful and the strong and very bad for everybody else, close quote. So what function does morality have in society for sex? It's not what we might think of as the classic sort of conservative view that morality keeps people uh, from doing silly things. It's that morality stops the rich from becoming ever richer. And it's morality that stops the poor from becoming ever more miserable. So in a nutshell, Sachs's message is that society and the common good are the business of all of us. Uh, none of us can shirk responsibility for upholding these things and from strengthening the common good. Another idea from Sachs that the PM referred to was this idea of covenant. Uh, if you remember, the PM said that it was a richer and deeper idea than the idea of contract. Now, the covenant idea is an extremely rich and complex one in the Bible. Some theologians even hold it up as the organising principle of the whole of the scriptures. At its most basic, a covenant is a solemn agreement between God and his people, uh, setting out the terms of their relationship. And I think it's helpful to build up Sachs's understanding of covenant in terms of six stages, uh, because this will help us to see what, what's going on in the background when, when Scott Morrison appeals to this term as, as one that he favours. So number one, covenant for Sachs is a distinguishing feature of Israel's relationship with its God. Let's listen to a broadcast uh, where Sachs unpacks this idea. That was the foundation of the nation, uniquely it had God as its liberator and lawgiver, its sovereign judge and defender. Other nations had their gods, but none had a covenant with any of them, let alone with the creator of heaven and earth. The second feature of covenant that's important for Sachs is that it has a strong focus on an element of determined choice. There's a choice to make in the context of covenant. Let's listen. The good society doesn't just happen. Nor is it created by the market or the state. It's made from the moral choices of each of us. The third key point about Sachs's idea of covenant is that the responsibility involved in being part of a covenant community is a responsibility that I must assume for myself. I can't devolve it. I can't delegate it to institutions to act on my behalf. Let's listen. In other words, it's not the state, the government, the army or the police. That is the primary guardian of the law. These may be necessary, as indicated at the beginning of next week's parsha. You shall appoint magistrates and officials for your tribes. But the truth is, the responsibility belongs to each of us and all of us together. That's what makes the ethic of the covenant unique. Fourthly. For Sachs, we shouldn't rely on institutions to enforce compliance with the law either. Let's listen. In other words, the less law enforcement depends on surveillance or the police, and the more on internalised habits of law-abidingness, the freer the society. That's why Moses and later Ezra and later still the rabbis put so much emphasis on learning the law so that it becomes natural to keep the law. And fifthly, for Sachs, being part of a covenant means that the responsibility that I have is not a responsibility for myself alone, but I'm actually responsible for those around me. 
mention this story because of its obvious relevance to the command in today's parasha. Do not see your kinsman's donkey or his ox fallen on the road and ignore it. Help him lift it up. On the face of it, this is one tiny detail in a parsha full of commands. But its real significance lies in telling us what a covenant society should look like. It's a place where people are good neighbors and are willing to help even a stranger in distress. Its citizens care about the welfare of others. When they see someone in need of help, they don't walk on by. And sixthly, Sachs then translates this paradigm into our own day. He talks about modern covenant societies. We see this in a phrase that is central to American politics and doesn't exist at all in British politics. The phrase, we, the people. These are the opening words of the preamble to the American Constitution. Britain is not ruled by we, the people. It is ruled by Her Majesty the Queen, whose loyal subjects we are. The difference is that Britain is not a covenant society, whereas America is. Its earliest key text, the Mayflower Compact of 1620, and John Winthrop's address aboard the Arabella in the 1630, were both covenants built on the Devarim model. Covenant means we can't delegate moral responsibility away to either the market or the state. We, each of us, separately and together, make or break society. So once again, then, for Sachs, living in covenant is about assuming responsibility for ourselves and for others, not delegating responsibility either to the state or the market. For Sachs, this is what it means to live in covenant. And we can see something of this impulse to a distribution of responsibility in the final theme of the PM's answer to my question that I want to draw attention to, the, the importance of the non-profit sector. Now, given that the PM was speaking to a delegation from the non-profit sector, it, it's not surprising that he focused on this in his answer. Um, he's talking about what is sometimes called civil society. Uh, those organisations and institutions that are neither part of the corporate sector on the one hand, nor part of the state on the other hand. Uh, everything from sports clubs and charities and activist groups and unions and religious organisations. And this sector, in Scott Morrison's mind, is responsible for providing services. And this role is, in the PM's eyes, supported by all Australians. He says, quote, I think there's a great strong resilience and support for these institutions in Australia. So I suppose I'd have a more positive view about the status of the contract. And I would say that Australia was an example, not a laggard in this way. And I think our systems reflect that right across the board. Now, it's very interesting that he draws out this particular emphasis in this answer, because it's not an emphasis that he returns to much at all in his public discourse about the social contract, as we'll see in a moment. So let's move on now from his answer to my question to consider other times when the PM has used social contract language. There are two moments, two speeches in which it occurs that, that I can find on the website of his public speeches. And the first relates to the job seeker allowance. 
It comes from the 23rd of February, 2021, which is interestingly one day after the response that he gave to the question that I asked as part of the delegation. So clearly the social contract idea was in the PM's mind uh, at the time that we visited. It comes in the course of a press conference given at Parliament House, announcing the end of the JobKeeper payment and the JobSeeker supplement at the end of March, uh, 2021. And the social contract is framed in this speech in terms of what Mr. Morrison calls mutual obligation requirements uh, between the state and taxpayers and citizens who are in precarious employment positions. In this speech, his first mention of the social contract is in relation to the government's responsibility to its citizens. And let's listen to that clip now. Now, social security payments, welfare support, when people need it is something we strongly believe in, and at a cost of some $9 billion over the Ford estimates, including the cost between now and the end of this year. That is a, a contract with Australians and Australian taxpayers. Australian taxpayers believe in this system. I believe in this system, and they know it's important for people who really need it, and particularly now. Now, notice in this clip that there are two named parties to the contract in addition to the government. We've got Australians, and separately, Australian taxpayers. And the effect of this, of course, is to make visible where the money is coming from for the job seeker allowance. So the government in this speech has a double responsibility to help those in need and to spend taxpayers' money wisely. Taxpayers have a responsibility to provide money to help those who are doing it tough. And those receiving the money then have a responsibility not to take more of that money than they need and to take it for as little time as they're able. I get the sense that Scott Morrison is trying, at least, to disperse responsibility for this scheme, not to have the government as the sole agent in relation to JobKeeper. It's quite a Saxian move in that sense. And the way that he does this is through the mechanism of mutual obligation, uh, which means that a job seeker must actively look for work and, and must justify refusing any job that's offered to them. Uh, the official website for JobSeeker defines this mutual obligation requirement in the following way, quote, mutual obligation requirements are tasks and activities you, i.e. the JobSeeker, agree to while getting certain payments from us, the government. The penalties apply if you don't meet them, close quote. Now, the problem with this rhetoric is that it runs counter to Jonathan Sachs' idea of covenant and responsibility. Because for Sachs, the more the system re relies on surveillance and policing, the weaker the social covenant is. But bluntly, it's hard to read the, these penalties as anything but a lack of trust between the government and job seekers. And trust is, I would argue, the primary currency of any social contract. It wouldn't be a mutual obligation if the government didn't also have an obligation to the job seeker. And, and indeed, the Prime Minister identifies that obligation in the following clip. Many people who may go on to this payment who have never been on it before in the months ahead, as there has been over the course of the last year. And what's important is the, is the mutual obligation that we all have one to another in how our social safety net works. You know, every person we get in a job, they're better off 
and the country's better off. And so that remains our objective. If you're on Job Seeker, we will work night and day to get you off it and into a job. Now that is a fascinating clip. Note the emphasis here. The emphasis falls not on the government having an obligation to pay the job seeker allowance, but on the government having an obligation to work hard to get the recipient off the job seeker allowance. The language is not that the government is obliged to support or help out those who are out of work, but the government is obliged to help them get a job because then in order to use uh, Morrison's terms, both they and the government are, are better off as a result. Now, like the safety net metaphor, there's a very interesting emphasis, a very interesting framing going on here. Not the provision of help itself, but on the end to which that provision is provided. It's not about helping you while you don't have a job. It's about getting to the point where you don't need the help for not having a job anymore. Uh, it, it's like saying, for example, that the point of hospitals is to get people to leave hospital, or the point of schools is to produce school leavers. It's not factually incorrect, but it does provide a particular framing, a particular emphasis to what those institutions are all about. And what now about the final category of, of person who's involved in this web of mutual obligations, those who are doing it tough, those who don't have a job? What is their responsibility? Well, the answer is given in the next clip that I'm going to play from the same press conference by Senator Michaelia Cash, Minister for Employment, Skills, Small Family and Business. Let's listen. Uh, this is all about acknowledging that if I am receiving welfare, I have obligations to do everything I can to get into a job. But this is also the government's commitment to all Australians. The best form of welfare is a job and we will do everything that we can to move people from welfare into work. The language here is of obligation, isn't it? As opposed to responsibility. Uh, again, the difference between obligation and responsibility is subtle, but it's significant. If I have a responsibility for something, it's generally thought to be something that I bear, something that I assume. The emphasis is on my agency. I am the one responsible. But if by contrast, I have an obligation to do something, then the emphasis is on the action of the one obliging me. Obligation, generally speaking, is less empowering. It's more constraining uh, as an idea. It's more paternalistic, if you like. And this, again, is precisely the emphasis that Sachs is warning against in his work on the social covenant. Uh, the obligation of the unemployed mirrors that of the government in the way that, that um, Scott Morrison and his ministers are thinking about it. They both have, both the government and the job seeker, has a responsibility, and that responsibility is the same in both cases. It is the responsibility to find work. And this frames welfare as something mildly objectionable, like a hospital visit. It's a situation that everybody should work hard to avoid. When I was working through the language of this press conference, it reminded me of a, a 1988 speech uh, by Ronald Reagan. Uh, he just signed the Family Support Act. I am pleased to sign into law today a major reform of our nation's welfare system, the Family Support Act. 
This bill, H.R. 1720, represents the culmination of more than two years of effort and responds to the call in my 1986 State of the Union message for real welfare reform, reform that will lead to lasting emancipation from welfare dependency. I'm not putting those words uh, in uh, the Australian Prime Minister's mouth, but it's the, it's the same sort of instinct, isn't it? Welfare dependency is something that we need to work really hard to avoid, and it's a good thing to stop needing it. It's something which we should try and break free from and which government should help us to break free from. And to come off welfare is a liberation. It's an emancipation. Now, this view of welfare isn't itself a particular government policy, of course. But in some ways, it's even more important than a policy because it's more fundamental. It taps into a political instinct rather than simply a political outcome. It's, it's a fundamental orientation. It's what philosophers might call an, an ethos or a predisposition. Let me just explain what I mean with a little story. Uh, so my three-year-old daughter and I have very different attitudes to bugs in the garden. Uh, I'm not a great fan of bugs. If I see a spider or a snail, my instinct is to, to keep well away. Uh, but my daughter is precisely the opposite. She wants to go pick them up, stroke them, um, give them names. Now, that doesn't mean that I never pick them up and it doesn't mean that she always picks them up. It doesn't mean that she's never scared of them. It doesn't mean that I'm always scared of them. But by and large, I see bugs as something to be avoided and she sees bugs as something to be petted. We both have a fundamental instinct, a fundamental predisposition toward bugs. And Scott Morrison's fundamental predisposition towards welfare is that it's something everyone has a responsibility to work hard to avoid. There are times when it's necessary to increase it, of course, such as in the COVID crisis. But the instinct is to get as many people off it as possible. That is the default setting, if you like. Now, very interestingly, at the end of Senator Cash's words, when the assembled press is expecting to ask their questions at the end of the formal presentation part of the press conference, Morrison interjects that the camera has to swing round to him. We're not expecting him to speak at this point. And he interjects one sentence that I can only assume was unplanned and unscripted, but it's a very revealing one about the social contract. Let's listen. So our social safety net is a social contract. It's a contract between the government and Australians but it's also a contract between Australians. And what you've heard just announced today is about getting the balance of that right. Now, what the PM is doing here is he's picking up on one of the themes that he gave in the longer reply to my question on the social contract the day before. So we've got these three terms. We've got social contract, we've got safety net, and we've got balance. Again, all coming up in this brief interjection. Uh, and they all came up in the answer to my question. Now, I take it from this that it's reasonable to understand his response to my question as an extrapolation of this condensed and extemporised remark the day later, or, or perhaps even that this remark is a condensed version of what he was articulating to me the day before. But whichever way around it is, I think it's helpful to read these two, the answer to my question and this extemporised remark in the press conference, side by side. I want to focus particularly on one part of this off-the-cuff remark, the bit where he says, quote, our social safety net is a social contract. 
It's a contract between the government and Australians, but it is also a contract between Australians, close quote. Now, I read this as a way of reframing the thoughts about responsibility that he was expressing the day before and that he was drawing from Jonathan Sachs. Morrison doesn't want the government to be the centre of society. He doesn't want the government to be the interchange through which all social traffic must pass. He sees the social contract as between taxpayers on the one hand and job keepers on the other hand. In other words, we taxpayers will put food on your table, job keepers, if you work hard to look for a job. Again, rhetorically, the Prime Minister wants a dispersal of responsibility throughout society. He doesn't want government to be at the centre of everything. But as we've seen, there's much in his rhetoric that also militates against that instinct, gathering the agency to government, uh, employing measures of surveillance and checks and balances, constraining citizens to act in a particular way. I want to return now to this key theme of balance because the Prime Minister returns to it in the press conference on the 23rd. It's a key metaphor for understanding his view of the social contract. During the press conference, the term balance is used by Morrison and his minister seven times. Uh, it's a really popular term for the prime minister in general. It actually appears 622 times across all his media appearances since taking office. And th in this case, it's a case of striking, quote, the balance right between providing support for people and incentives to work, close quote. And I think Minister Anne Ruston's first words are really illuminating on this theme. Let me play you those now. Um, thank you very much, PM. Uh, well, the package of, of measures that we're going to announce today um, are clearly about getting the balance right. We need to support people while they're looking for work. We need to create the incentives um, so people want to look for work. And we also have to remove the disincentives so that they're not disincentivised for work. But what we need to do is we need to ensure that we have a system that is fair and sustainable for the people who need it and the taxpayers who pay for it. So then, as far as Anne Ruston is concerned, the balance is between supporting people who are out of work and, so to speak, not supporting them too much to take the incentive away from looking for work. Uh, the balance is also between the people who need the benefits and the taxpayers who fund them. The government wants to help people, in other words, but it doesn't want to help them such that they become comfortable with the help that's being provided. Now, what does this assume? It seems to assume that taxpayers want to pay as little as possible, want to help as little as possible, and that welfare recipients want as much as possible. In other words, it seems to assume that this language of balance, a weak social contract and a weak sense of the common good. It seems to assume that everyone wants as much as they can for themselves and it is the government's position then to step in and to balance those competing selfish interests. It's the government's job in this way of looking at things to arbitrate between the various selfish demands in society. No one has a view of the whole apart from the government. Everybody is out for as much as they can get, the, the taxpayers to pay as little tax as they can, the job seekers to get as much allowance as they can. And this again is a very long way, is it not, from Sachs's responsibility 
and from the strong social contract he has where I'm looking out not only for myself, but also for those around me. This metaphor of balance seems to tip towards an adversarial paradigm in which each group is lobbying for their own interests and only government can provide the right balance. Now, it may well be an accurate picture, but it makes a poor soil in which to grow a strong social contract. Because a strong social contract is reliant on prerequisites like a sense of the common good and a sense of shared identity and a responsibility one for another that seems to be lacking in this way of thinking about the social contract uh, that's uh, got balance at its centre. So then for Senator Ruston, balance is one of the key concepts of her contribution. Uh, here are her first words at the press conference. The package of measures that we are going to announce today are clearly about getting the balance right. Close quote. For Senator Ruston, it's a threefold balance. We need to one, support people while they're looking for work. Number two, create the incentives so that they want to look for work. And three, we've got to remain, uh, a dis there's got to be a disincentive so that they're not disincentivized to look for work. Now, there are also a number of assumptions in this way of framing things that, again, are just worth looking at and making explicit. Number one, people require incentives before they'll want to look for work. And number two, overly generous welfare is a disincentive to work. Now, I don't want to get into the wisdom or otherwise of, of that outlook on a policy level. What, what I want to make is a broader philosophical point, which is this. Once again, this way of looking at things sees the government as the main driver and agent of the social contract. People will look for work if the government does the right things, and they won't look for work if the government doesn't. It's the government that drives people's desires and drives people's actions. It puts the state, if you like, at the apex of the social contract, uh, something like this diagram here. I'd like to move now to the only other time when Scott Morrison is recorded as using social contract language on the website of his official uh, speeches as prime minister. Uh, this time it's from April 2020 and it's in relation to the COVID pandemic. It comes in the course of an interview on the ABC 730 Report programme, uh, an interview conducted by Lee Sales. Let me play you the entire clip and then we'll try and tease out uh, some key points from it. Uh, this is what the Prime Minister said. I want to show people some of the latest graphs from the Federal Health Department. The first of these graphs shows the number of cases by age group in Australia, and you can see that it's pretty evenly spread mm. across ages. The most cases are people in their 20s. But when you look at deaths, Correct. the deaths are heavily in the 70s and 80s age bracket with zero deaths in Australia under 50. Is it fair to say Correct. that the people who are bearing the hardest burden of the economic shutdown are not the people who are at the most serious health risk? Well, I think that is a, a reasonable um, assumption to make, and but I don't think they would consider the death of an, any Australian would be an unreasonable burden to carry uh, for the sake of an, another one of their uh, of their fellow Australians. Are authorities worried, though, that when you look at graphs like that, if the hard lockdowns last too long, that Australians under 50 could start rebelling and pushing back against the destruction of their jobs and livelihoods? Well, sure, it is a social contract. I... I 
don't de uh, deny that for a second. I think there's a social licence here with governments about how these arrangements are put in place. And I can assure you, no one wants these restrictions in any longer than they have to be in. That's one of the reasons I we, we don't go for that uh, um, complete eradication strategy. A, I mean, it's very elusive um, and the costs to those livelihoods, as you're saying, are very significant uh, with no real um, clear um, additional benefit, at least from what the evidence we're getting at the moment. So yeah, I think it is getting that balance right, Lee. In this intervention, Scott Morrison is evoking what's been called the intergenerational contract. Uh, it's a version of the social contract between different generations in a given society. So for example, those who are working now are paying into pension funds to support the pensions of those who are retired, for example. And the mutual responsibility factor here is that no generation should enrich itself at the cost of impoverishing other generations. In the context of this particular interview, uh, the idea is that younger Australians are going to do the right thing for the sake of their older fellow citizens. They're going to take the, the burden of the economic shutdown in order to save lives among the elderly. And, and according to the Prime Minister, this is an exchange that, that no young Australian will be hesitant to make. Now, this is a really interesting premise because it opens the door to thinking that sometimes the burdens of the social contract will fall disproportionately on one group within society, uh, in this case, the younger members of society, in order to benefit disproportionately another group within society, in this case, the elderly. And this is a sort of calculating that's made in all tax systems, particularly in redistributive tax systems. And it's perhaps epitomised by Karl Marx's adage, from each according to his or her ability, to each according to his or her needs. So if I have a greater ability to pay, for example, but not a great deal of need, then I will contribute disproportionately for the good of others in society. And if I have a great need, but not much ability, then I will benefit disproportionately from the provisions of the social contract. And this way of thinking of things draws upon a spirit of civic responsibility that's iconically articulated in John F. Kennedy's Ask Not What Your Country Can Do For You, Ask What You Can Do For Your Country. And it's also at the heart of this rather more prosaic slogan that's been trotted out regularly during the COVID pandemic that we are, quote, all in this together. And it highlights the truth that the social contract relies on a degree of common identity. If I'm a younger person, for example, and I'm concerned only with my slice of the cake, then I'm going to resent taking a sizable economic hit for the sake of those in society who are older than I am. But the more that I think in terms of us, of, of society in general, the more I'll be willing to take this disproportionate hit in order to benefit groups of society to which I don't belong. And this sort of thinking happens all the time in families, doesn't it? Parents sacrifice for their children and so forth. But it's often much more difficult to engineer on a national level or even on a local level. The, the idea that we have a common identity and, and one group can take a disproportionate burden for the sake of another group. Note also in this clip that the theme of balance returns. The government's role in the social contract, uh, Scott Morrison 
explains to Lee Sales, is to balance younger people's economic interests against older people's existential interests. And once more, this tips towards something of an adversarial mindset, doesn't it? Uh, society is composed of a series of groups, each with their own interests, and the government needs to be the neutral arbiter between them. It also assumes that the glue of the state, the glue of the government, is holding together these competing interests in society. In other words, the, the government is the linchpin of the social contract in this way of viewing things, without which presumably there, there'd be anarchy and, and great strife and, and a conflict of interests. The state is the one that does the balancing. So let's put all this together now. In these three different contexts, the April 2020 uh, ABC interview, uh, the February 23rd news conference, and the February 22nd answer to my question, Scott Morrison mentions three parties to the social contract. Uh, we've got the government, we've got citizens, and we've got civil society or, or the non-profit sector. And citizens are subdivided into taxpayers and those looking for jobs in the press conference, or in young people and the elderly in the ABC interview. And each of these groups within society has responsibilities to the other two. And each subdivision within the citizenry has obligations to the other citizens and also to the state. Consistently across these different articulations of the social contract, it's the government's job to balance the interests of taxpayers and job seekers. Uh, and the social contract traces a web of responsibilities between the state and the citizens and the non-profit sector. In Scott Morrison's way of thinking, the government must incentivize certain behaviours and it must disincentivize others. Uh, and this is brought together with a rhetoric of sometimes distributed responsibility and sometimes mutual obligations. just want to take a step back now for a moment and reflect, well, what is an alternative to the state being the party that, that is responsible for keeping the balance? Well, surely it, it's a layer, something between the universal state, the state overall people, and the single citizen, the isolated individual. It's, it's some layer between those two. It is the civil society. Uh, those groups that Scott Morrison seemed enthusiastic about when he was speaking to the delegation that I was part of, but that don't figure in his public pronouncements on the social contract. The PM's rhetoric, I would suggest, is caught in a tension between what seems like an ideological desire to disperse responsibility throughout society, following the model of Jonathan Sachs, and a suite of measures and interventions that reinforce the central power of the state and reinforce the surveillance of the state over its citizens. It, it seems to be that the PM struggles to reconcile these two opposed movements of dispersing and gathering responsibility. Now, this could be construed as a critique of the Morrison government, but it could also be seen as simply a symptom of a civic life that is so shriveled and so impoverished that the one functioning organ of agency and obligation that remains to us is the state, so impotent 
has civil society become? And to push farther down this track, we need to discuss modern theories of sovereignty, and that's not the purpose of this video. One final point as we finish. What is missing from Scott Morrison's picture of the social contract? Well, it is the corporate sector, corporate responsibility and corporate obligations. I've searched through the PM speeches uh, on his official website and I can't find a mention of the term corporate responsibility. Now, what are we to make of this absence? Well, let me give you two options. A maximally unfavourable reading would interpret Mr Morrison's remarks to be painting a corporate sector in the role of Thomas Hobbes's Leviathan, uh, as a despotic sovereign who's not itself party to the social contract and can therefore do whatever it wants. Uh, the corporate sector as a tyrant, exempt from the provisions of the social contract. A maximally sympathetic reading would point out that the context of the remarks that I've been discussing in this video were contexts in which the responsibilities of the corporate sector weren't up for discussion. So we can't possibly expect the prime minister uh, to, to go hard on the corporate sector uh, in the context that, that we've been discussing. So here we have our final diagram of Scott Morrison's social contract. It's a network of responsibilities and obligations between the state, citizens and the non-profit sector. It often pits one subgroup within the citizenry against each other. It's a view of the social contract in which the government holds the balance and incentivizes or disincentivizes certain behaviors. And it has no explicit mention of the corporate sector. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Social Contract Research Podcast. This occasional series features seminars, conversations and interviews related to the contemporary social contract. It's hosted by the Social Contract Research Network at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. For more information about the network and further resources on social and practical questions related to the contemporary social contract, please see the show notes or search for Monash Social Contract Research Network.